Our scripture reading today is coming from uh, the letter to the Philippian church, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 4. The NIV Bible has two titles for this, that's not part of the scripture, but the NIV writers have these titles to give it a theme. The first is life worthy of the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? And then the next is imitating Christ, imitating Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Well, today we continue in our sermon series, working our way through the New Testament book of Philippians. It's a letter that the Apostle wrote to the church in the Macedonian Greek city of Philippi. Feel free to turn in your Bibles to just before the beginning of chapter 2 of Philippians. Uh, we're going to start our investigation into the text at verse 27, which prepares the way for a very significant moment in this letter at the beginning of the second chapter. <clears throat> now, we've been, we have been uh, exploring chapter 1 so far. We're not yet out of chapter 1, three sermons in. Uh, we, if you recall, though, we read those powerful words from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians in chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. That encouragement that God was present, actively working to get the Philippians to where they needed to be. And then last week, we noted just how many references there are to the person of Christ in the first chapter. And in particular, to the work of Christ. The partnership in the gospel is what Paul called it. This working to advance the message of Jesus, the Savior in the world. That message that formed around it a community 
of people who received the love of Christ and then would share that love with one another in a way that, that was attractive and, and invited people in because they saw how the church treated one another. Now, the ancient city of Philippi, we're, we're really blessed. Uh, uh, some of you noticed when you came into church today that, that the narthex, our main hallway, has kind of a... Uh, it, it's kind of an art installation of some photographs that, uh, that I took in the ancient city of Philippi in May of this year. And uh, you're, you're drawn from the coastal town of Neapolis, which now is called Kavala on the, the Greek coast. And that's where Paul, according to the book of Acts, uh, entered Europe. First time the gospel was shared in the, on the continent of Europe. And then Paul walked the 8 to 10 miles or so to the city of Philippi, which was a significant city, not too large of a city, but significant in that it was a Roman colony of note and of kind of cultural authority in the region. And that's where Paul established a church, a, a, a ministry began there, and a number of years later, Paul is in prison in Rome and is writing to encourage the Philippians, writing to, to assure them that he's okay. And writing to continue to nurture them in the life of Christ. Well, here we read these words in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Striving together as one. You know, in an early conversation, kind of an early uh, uh, version of this sermon series, the word striving I had in the title, and uh, I engaged in some conversations with some folks where it became really clear, and it made sense to me, that in Christian circles, striving is not always seen in a positive light. You know, striving might be something that we do trying to make ourselves fit for God, right? Maybe we might strive and try to do things on our own that the scriptures tell us that God does those, and all we need to do is receive the gift. But there's something powerful in this moment where Paul says these words. Now, now the word behind the concept of striving together is a Greek word that is kind of hard to translate. But when once you've been taken to the Greek nature of this word, you kind of can't see it for what it is. Because we see it all around us. And many of us have experiences of this in our lives today. And the Greek word behind this phrase, striving together as one, is soon athleo. Soon athleo. It means to struggle along with, to strive for something side by side. And the root of this word is this word in Greek, athleo. Have you ever heard of the English word athletics? Seems a safe bet, right, that you've heard that word before. Have you ever heard of someone being referred to as an athlete? Yes. So athlete, athletics, 
this is what that word is talking about. And this isn't the last time that the Apostle Paul will use athletic imagery in his letter to the Philippians. The prefix of sin, S-Y-N, that was kind of an inspiration to the synergy of the series title, um, means with. So it's not that you're a solo competitor or solo athlete. It's that you are being athletic with others, working together. Think about a team where the people are working closely together. Now, you're not, when you're on a team in athletics, it's not just that you're gathering together trying to cooperate, but there's an opponent in mind. You're going to have a contest. And in the Philippian context, there are opponents to the gospel. There are opponents to the life of Christ. They might be active opponents, Opponents who might imprison you or publicly abuse you. That's what happened to Paul in Philippi. You can read about that in Acts 16. But it could be passive suffering as well. Like being left out of the trade associations in a town known for its Roman trade. But that trade was done in, in associations with religious connections, where offerings were made to particular idols or particular uh, deified rulers in the Roman Empire, that once you became a follower of Christ, you couldn't engage in. And so there was suffering, maybe even material or financial suffering in business because of associating with Christ. Whatever it was, Philippians, along with most of the New Testament, considers that suffering in the Christian life at some level, is normative. Paul speaks of the Philippians having been given the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but also suffering for him. And that's all the more reason for them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, reflective of the good news of Christ. To live the faith authentically in the face of of these oppositional realities. And so when you think about the suffering and the opposition, it shows that there is a high degree of importance to the teamwork, the striving together that the church is called to. There's a whole lot at stake with working side by side, helping one another. There's a great need to do that. There's a great need to, as we might say in this modern day, to have one another's backs. Teamwork. Well, it's this text and chapter 2 to follow that was the inspiration for the theme, the chosen theme from our culture to mark this investigation into Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi in the choosing of rowing on a crew. 
and the cooperation and the unity that it takes for different people of different skill and ability and different ideas about how best to, to put a row, an oar into the water. How does that group of people become a boat that just glides through the water with efficiency? Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So if an image to remind us of kind of how we might strive together with consistency, with teamwork in the body of Christ, I thought no better illustration could we have than to uh, have an interview, a live interview, with uh, an, a person with experience at the NCAA level of rowing in a competitive crew in college. And it just so happens that we have two of those people in our church. And they're here, when they're in the country, they're here almost every Sunday, and they are married to each other, no less. And so I'd like them to come forward, grab a microphone, Harrison King and Kayla King, come on up, we're going to do a little interview about rowing crew. Now some of you might notice, hey, I just saw them up there leading worship. (laughs) And that is what they do. they, in addition to that, they also have road crews. So let's have you guys just stand in the middle. Oh. And uh, so just by way of preface, you guys, okay, so you were, you were married last year. And around the time of your first anniversary, you traveled to Europe and had a honeymoon. <laughs> and you just got back this week, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and how's the jet lag? Fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you're here. Jet we're lag is better. jet lag. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, all right. So, okay, so tell me about, uh, so we don't know anything about what your involvement is with crew, but you know, like, what to do with these oars, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But where did you, start with you, Kayla, where did you compete in crew in college? Um, So I rode at Gonzaga University, which is over in Spokane, and before that, I was rowing on Bainbridge Island, and so I got recruited to go to Gonzaga from rowing in Bainbridge only two years, so, yeah. Okay, thank you, Kayla. Harrison, tell us about your experience rowing crew in college. I also rode crew in college. I rode at the University of Washington, um, but I wasn't as good as Kayla, so I was not recruited. I had to to walk on to the team. He was really good. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, uh, you guys uh, understand that, that, uh, you know, the programs you were part of were very competitive and and, uh, did very well. Um, And so, but my question for you is, is what did your experience of rowing crew teach you about teamwork, about working together uh, in common, in sync? Uh, just share. Kayla, why don't you go first? Um, well, it taught you, a, like, a, t- traditionally you race boats in, like, eight-person boats, but there's also, like, certain boats that will race in fours. Um, and what was, like, surprising to me coming from, like, a high school team that primarily raced in eights and practiced in eights is that when you row eight people, you know, kind of like you have four oars on either side. And when you have that kind of like some of the imperfections and not being completely synced up with one another, those can kind of balance out. Whereas when I got to college, we raced and trained a lot in two-person boats, which is much more challenging to be 100% synced up and to be um, moving the boat efficiency and gracefully on glassy water, as um, you had said that. So 
to me, it, it really stood out that when you're working with just one person, you know, there's, there's more of a challenge and there's more of a dedication to what you're doing to, you know, really make that shine through and like to be moving the boat effortlessly, as we said. Yeah, it takes a lot more work maybe with the smaller group. And uh, have you ever experienced that? That, you know, the smaller the group, the more important your teamwork with them is. You can't kind of like, like just glide along with, yeah. with everyone else oh. with the flow of the boat. Uh, a lot depends on you. And, and I guess it, that also works with, with teams that are two-person teams known as marriages, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. We got, the, we got the acknowledgement there. Harrison, what, what comes to mind when, when you think about uh, just unity, cooperation, being in sync uh, in rowing? Yeah. Um, rowing uh, is a physically demanding sport. Um, maybe, you know, maybe more so than, than others. And as hard as it is, it, it sort of requires you to be even more cooperative than in other sports. And the physical nature of the sport demands that. Um, it's, it's because it's so challenging physically, um, the, well, sort of the irony is that if you aren't in sync with each other in the boat, um, there's a tendency for it to get even harder. <laughs> and when you're and it and it's it's a this the being in sync with each other is something that takes time a lot of times and it takes patience um, and it takes um, sort of an open mind. Um, you might be really used to rowing a certain technique, um, and everyone's individual. Um, but once you're in the boat, you really sort of have to humble yourself and be open to different techniques. Um, and it, you know, it's a, it's, it's, there's nothing else like the moment when everyone finds that, that spot yes. together. Um, I haven't experienced it in the workplace. <laughs> I haven't experienced it, well, okay, maybe at home. <laughs> but it, it truly is a magical moment when everyone sort of, there, and, and you can feel it um, both physically, but also there's like, there's almost a spiritual a, a spiritual quality to it, and um, and it it really makes the boat go a lot faster when it when it when it works out. So, well, I want to say that that uh, when you talked about that that special moment, people are like really in sync and and working together. Um, I, I hope that I'm speaking for most people in the congregation that we see that happen in our worship team uh, quite often. And so thank you for, for the way that you contribute to that. Uh, shout out to Brian and, and all those who, who work on our worship team because it comes across and you guys are all rowing together and, uh, and it, it looks, plus you're having fun. There's a lot of smiles there as well. Um, thank you for sharing with us some of your insights into, into teamwork and cooperation in rowing. Thank Absolutely, you. Let's, let's thank, thank you. Harrison and Kayla. The hard work of working together in the church is worth it. It does make a difference when we are coming to our activities in the church kind of ready. 
We are following Christ. We're paying attention to our spiritual disciplines, to our life of prayer. But then when we, when we relate to each other, when we gather together and talk about ministry or we gather together to study scripture, when we gather together in leadership to make decisions and discernment, it matters that we allow ourselves and our idea of things to be conditioned by others who are in the same boat with us. And Paul is going to give us some ways that we can do that as we move into chapter 2. So let's take a look at that. Being one, looking out for others. Starting in verse 2, Paul writes, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So here, the Apostle Paul introduces this concept of oneness. Oneness. This intimate togetherness within the community of faith. Different people but unified. And the oneness touches all different aspects of the life together and the interaction between people. It's, it affects their minds. It affects what they think, that they're thinking in sync with one another. It connects with their spirit, their soul. And it also finds expression in love in their acts of love for one another, in the way that they receive the love of Christ and share that love with one another. But this oneness, and this is remarkable, we see this throughout the New Testament, this oneness is not forced conformity. It's not a, a oneness or a unity that is formed because there's one person at the top who basically threatens everyone else to behave. Have you ever been in a family like that? <laughs> Have you ever been on a team like that? For a certain amount of time, that can be effective. But it usually has a shelf life, doesn't it? Because people start to, to wither under that type of pressure from above. But rather than having oneness come through forced conformity, Paul is describing a process here that it comes through mutual self-regulation. Mutual self-regulation. I liked how when Harrison mentioned that when you get in that boat, you have your, the technique that you come in with, but but you're in that moment, real time, having to regulate yourself based on what the needs of others in the boat um, is, but also what the, the mission of the whole, of the team is. And this kind of unity, unity that, is, that, that comes from self-regulation, requires something of us, and that is what Paul calls humility. Humility. Humility implies the ability to set aside our self-interest 
in our interactions with others. But it's notoriously difficult to self-assess. We might recall the tongue-in-cheek country song that starts out, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, remarkable book, The Screwtape Letters, pens an imaginative portrayal of a minor demon being offered advice by his mentor on how to frustrate the follower of Christ. In one instance, the demon is directed to encourage a particular person in their belief in their own humility. Because, in fact, the person in question is anything but humble. You know, humility was not a value in the Roman world. It wasn't a positive value, I might say. It was something you tried to avoid at all costs. Humility meant humiliation. And so the culture, the society, was built on, uh, on kind of competitive reciprocity. There was working together, but not working together where you would lift up others. And so Paul lifting this up in Philippi, which was a Roman colony, this word comes as a countercultural word. For people like the Philippians, and dare I say us, in our society today, who need more specifics on how to genuinely act with humility, Paul guides us into a specific aspect of humility. And this act is looking out for others. Looking out for others. In a, in a world, in a culture that might have us look in at our own needs and make sure that in our interactions with other people that those needs get met. And that, that whatever I want to see happen, that I work hard to make sure that that happens. Paul here is saying that humility moves us outward to look at others and look out for them. The first step in this that Paul brings up in the text is to value others, even above ourselves. Now, going back to the, uh, to the truth that in the Roman world, uh, it, was, it would be very uncommon for someone to be struggling with being too humble. And so if you find yourself in a place where you feel you're in a place of humiliation in your life, that you feel you are, are being ignored and that you struggle with seeing that you have value, Paul's not saying um, value those other people more powerful than you above yourself. Paul has a word to us as a church to make sure that that person in that place who feels that way about their life, that we are the ones that communicate to them that they have infinite value in Christ. Amen? But to value others truly is what Paul is talking about here. Without making excuses, to really look at another person with whom we work 
and to say, you matter. You matter just as much as me. That's what Paul is saying here. And then step two, Paul says, look to the interests of others, even to the extent of placing their interests above your very own. Or at least keeping an open, an openness. An openness that what you value or what might, you might have thought was in your interest, that that might change because you find out about the needs of others around you. Have you ever looked out for someone on the first day? A few weeks ago, uh, our kids and teachers and administrators had their first day of a new school year. Sometimes we have people around us on that first day that we know well. But on that first day, sometimes we're new to the community. We've just moved. Maybe we're going to a new school that's out of the normal uh, pattern of our friends that we've grown up with. And we find ourselves alone. We need someone to look out for us. This happens on your first day at the job as well. Can you identify with that one? First day on the job. Maybe it's your first day of your real job, if you can remember that. And the reception that you get from your coworkers makes the difference, doesn't it? If you're warmly welcomed, you are committed. And there's nothing that you can't do or probably won't do, in a manner of speaking, for that work group. But if the, on that first day, all you get is people looking at you with suspicion and saying, don't come too close, it's not safe here, warning signs and bells will go off within your soul, and you'll wonder if it's a safe place to be. It happens in our first day of soccer practice as well, or a new sport, is it just going to be about competition? Or is there something that the coaches have done to, to raise up the value of teamwork, that we do this together with one another? Well, perhaps you've been that person who is being looked out for in a new place, in, a, in need of connection and encouragement. Reflecting on this personally, I can go back at various times when I had that first day, that first moment, where, where I can really say how God came near in the form of people who welcomed me and encouraged me, and I'm so grateful. But I wonder if you can also remember being approached by people whose what can I do for you veiled a what can you do for me expectation. Because, by the way, that's how the Roman world did it. And we're pretty skilled in doing that ourselves in our culture. You're, you're going to be looked out for, but only if you agree to certain strings being attached. In our society, we're so used to the concept of networking that sometimes we forget what it's all about. That networking truly is about scanning, looking out for others 
for what they can do for us and our career. Now, some of you know from experience that it's a fine line. It can be amazing to go into networking by also thinking, what gift do I have to give to others who are here? And that might be something that Christ is inviting us to do. In our society, we're so used to this uh, that we have an, a phrase that is common in English, but it's written in Latin. And it's, and it's quid pro quo. And whether or not you know exactly what those Latin words mean, you know what that means, don't you? It means something for something. It means someone's going to give something to you with the expectation that you're going to give something to them. It's contingent. And it's unmistakable, isn't it, when you're being leveraged for a return favor. Which makes it altogether remarkable when in a team or a family or a church, everyone is genuinely looking out for others without calculation of what others can do for them. The result? Each person in that community, in that team, knows that they matter, that they have value. And each person knows that they are not alone. It's important to the Apostle Paul that the Philippians and us, that we know that we are not alone. Paul started out chapter 2 talking about encouragement that comes from Christ through our union with him. He talked about the comfort that we have in Christ's love and the koinonia, the sharing in the Spirit. And in these brief verses at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul takes what we have received from Christ, this message that we are not alone, and invites us to be the ones who share with one another that same truth. We're sharing with each other that you are not alone when we love others as Christ has loved us, when we offer others the encouragement we've received from Christ, when we offer others the comfort that we have received from the Lord, when we share life together with them in community. And what Christ communicates to us, we in turn are called to communicate in a thousand different ways. You are not alone. We are in this together and this is what makes christian joy complete when we work and we struggle and even when we strive together with side-by-side synergy amen